Hey, listeners in podcast land, this is Ian, and welcome to episode five of Not My Forte, season one, Ian Hears the Beatles. Today, we're discussing their seventh album, Revolver, and the single, Paperback Writer. We're joined by our second guest, Jessica Russo. We have a great deal of fun on today's episode. Hey, if you've been enjoying this podcast, we invite you to subscribe to it on whatever platform that you're listening to us on. And if you really, really like it, then we invite you to go ahead and share it with a friend. Hey, if you don't already follow us on our social media accounts, then our Instagram handle is at NotMyFortePodcast. You can follow us there, or you can go over to Facebook and follow us at NotMyForte with Joel and Ian. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey everybody, welcome to episode five. Ian is still hearing the Beatles yes, here yes, on yes. Revolver, episode five, which I believe means that we're on album seven. So we'll hear from him for in a second how he's feeling about that. Um, we are joined in the studio today by my wife, Jessica, who is over on the couch. Hi, Jess. Hey. This whole idea of this podcast was was sort yes. of initiated by Jessica, actually. Yes, so. and that was one of the things that made us want to have her on an episode. Yes. And this is an album that kind of pro- figured prominently out of all the Beatles albums in her childhood. So it felt like a good time to bring her in. Um, so she's going to be contributing. All right. Uh, first of all, Ian, how are we feeling overall? Like, I know sometimes we save this for the, the last part to talk sure. about, but like... Overall, seven albums in, what are your overall feelings of the arc of this thing? Wow. I mean, I feel like there was a plot twist for me this week that I did not see coming, actually. And I'm just going to get it right out of the way and just say it. And I'll express it a little bit more as I describe the songs that we were going through. But I felt sad when I got done with this album, Mm. actually. It was like a theme of sadness that seemed to permeate Sure. The tracks and the songs. Mm. And so yeah. I couldn't I couldn't run away from it. And sure. and so it was kind of uh man, it was kind of a bummer actually listening to this to this <laughs> album, <Yeah>. actually. <laughs> um and I'm sure you'll be able to express things or communicate yeah. things. I I don't think I was projecting Mm-mm. uh sadness because we just had a great week last week, mm-hmm. of which you were both a part of. Mm-hmm. Um and a fun week, so I think that there was something in the songs and something in the band that that really just kind of affected me in a way that I didn't expect. Sure. Mm. Yeah, I don't think that's an accident. Okay. All right, well, uh, let's get into it. So uh, let's let's hear Ian's notes. You want to go song by song? Well, yeah, I'll go song by song, but I'll first preface it by saying what I feel like I'm listening to when I listen to Revolver mm. is the birth of alternative music. Mm. You know, we keep on talking about how the Beatles seem to have these genesis moments of things that affect so many areas of music and 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 maybe much more profoundly than any other band that's ever existed has a type of influence but when i listened to it i, I felt as though i was i was hearing like without this album you wouldn't have radiohead you wouldn't have wilco you wouldn't have the flaming lips there was a lot that yeah. was going on in and around what they were doing that feels like okay we're hearing alternative music for the first time especially in the context of who they were commercially yeah. and uh, and how the world viewed them as a band. 
Um, yeah, I definitely had a similar thought as I was listening through it earlier. I was like, this is not rock and roll music. Like, they were known as a rock and roll group. That was who they were. And I'm like, this is not rock and roll. No. <laughs> yeah, it was a totally different thing. Yeah, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess one question I do have before I even jump into it. Yeah. I didn't ask why they called Rubber Soul Rubber Soul, but Revolver, for whatever reason, like, what is there, a, is there like... I don't know. No? Okay. I thought about that actually just now as we were kind of launching into it. <laughs> I didn't look that up. But, yeah, Rubber Soul, I think, was just a, a kind of a psychedelic pun on, like, the sole of a shoe, but spelling it S-O-U-L. <laughs> gotcha. Um, the creativity, like, for all the creativity of the songs, the one thing that I really took away also on this is that they still managed to keep these things like under three minutes, which is yeah. amazing, you know? Yeah. Um, so they're still at that like 33, 34 minute mark per album. Mm-hmm. And so there's some really out there moments, I feel like, on the album in general, but it still feels accessible, which is why I probably made those references to like OK Computer with Radiohead and stuff like yeah. that. There's like an alternative quality to it, but it's accessible still. Yeah. So having said all that, Taxman is a lead off track. Yes, it is. So my two takeaways for that song were that um, I I do love the bass line in the, in the song. I think it's really cool. And I also dun, dun, got... Dun, dun. Right. Super cool. Uh, the other thing that struck me was like, okay... This is pretty imaginative lyrical writing. I wonder where their launch point is for stuff like this. They're singing about a tax man, collecting taxes. And they've gone from singing about romance, singing about teenage love, to singing about very imaginative stuff like singing about a tax man and making it hooky and making it cool and and fun while making it semi-abstract, sort of Mm. similar to... um, The Nowhere Man, you know, that, that was on the last right, album. Right. Something that's like you're relating to it, you're resonating with it, but you're not really sure why because it's not like incredibly yeah. on the nose. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. This song is basically kind of a protest song. Or it's like a political comment song of okay. how high the taxes were getting, especially for their income bracket in Britain at the time. Hmm. Yeah. And I think there was a, a commentary in the song. Some of the lyrics like spoke to that the the government was requiring their money through taxes and then spending it on things that they didn't agree with. Ah. Uh, hmm. And so at this point in time was I, I know John was very vocal about non or anti war stuff. Mm-hmm. Was at this time was he involved with Yoko Ono? Because they were they sort of like banded together in a lot of those efforts if I'm I don't know. Right. If 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 he was, it was very, very new. Okay. Yeah, I think that, that may have not happened quite yet. All right. But this first track is George. Oh, that's George singing that this too? This is a George, George. song. George. Wow. I didn't see it. Coming I, out the gate swinging, my boy George. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. I thought it was John. I Did couldn't pick it. When I was listening, I'm like, it's either Paul or John, right? Because that's who it always is. Yeah. And I'm like, it doesn't sound like either of them. And is this one where they do like a double vocal? Yeah. I think it's George doubling himself, though. Okay. I thought we'll maybe that, that was throwing me off, and that's why I couldn't identify it as Paul or yeah. John. But George yeah. it is. We'll check it. There's one for you, 19 for me. Yeah, it's George. Mm. Yeah. Wow, cool. Very Good cool. for him. Yeah. Georgie's on his way. Coming out swinging. I like that. Yeah, and obviously that's that's the first first time on any Beatles album that he has a lead-off track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it must be. Wow, yeah. that's cool. 
Is George Martin producing this album? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So he obviously has a lot of confidence in George at this time. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I guess they would all have to. I mean, it's kind of the most, probably the most kicking song rock and roll wise on the on the album. So it makes sense that it would be the lead off. I imagine that the other guys, I don't know how reluctant they were to let him have the lead off mm-hmm. single. I don't know. Or, or song. Well, it was a yeah. good choice. Good choice. Yeah. Are there any technical things you want to talk about with this tune? or So many, want? Ian. Yeah. <laughs> so many. I could talk about a couple of things. Uh, Paul played bass on this, um, which is no surprise, but he also played the guitar solos, which have long been some of my least favorite guitar solos. Um, they're this real kind of like stream of consciousness. It's like a major scale, but also like a minor pentatonic scale to huh. get super technical but like it it's it always seems kind of like okay like he, he's flailing around a lot and huh. so it's interesting that Paul doesn't seem like a Paul move but that's Paul playing that that really kind of like jagged bright guitar solo in, that happens a couple times in this song yeah Does he does he play other guitar solos on the album, or is this is this his only? He does, yeah. He's gonna play another one. Okay, Paul will. Yeah, he will continue to through through the rest of the band. Yeah, I wonder what what, what got into Paul. Be like, <laughs> you know, yeah, like George. I don't know. I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna let you have a lead off track, but I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna have my it. moment in the glory here, and I'm gonna play a guitar solo. How do you like that? Yeah, I think so. One thing to talk about, maybe that's good to talk about with this song, is that. Well, this album is a huge turning point in a lot of ways, even more so than Rubber Soul. I think I forgot. I was so surprised that all these elements that were being introduced last time when we listened to Rubber Soul that I almost kind of forgot how much of a seismic shift this one was. But especially in like the recording techniques, close miking the drums, using a lot of compression. Mm. So like you'll notice that the vocals are a lot more in your face. The guitars are a lot brighter. They use a lot more EQ. Hmm. For you listening at home, that's equalizer, a uh, lot, lot more kind of being able to ad- adjust the highs and lows of things and make them sound kind of maybe uh, artificially bright or piercing or muffled or whatever you want. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of that before, but this album, the big change was that they, and I found a couple different sources saying this, they wanted every instrument to just sound like itself. They didn't want a guitar to sound like a guitar or a piano to sound like a piano. They wanted each thing to kind of sound like what they wanted in their mind. Hmm. Um, And so I think that guitar solo and this whole song, honestly, is a great example of that, of like, it's super in your face, it's punchy. The, The recording techniques they were using were kind of new and would be very would be aped by everybody else after this. But, yeah, this was a a big deal. I hear that, yeah, because when you imitate, like, a guitar, an electric guitar, you're kind of like, and the guitar solo on that sounds like this guitar. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot more guitar-y than I think a lot of stuff before this, even though George is, he was very, you know, he played the Rickenbacker, it was very bright and stuff, but, yeah, this one, it's just very, it's very in your face, Mm. this one, and so we're going to see a lot more of that. So second track, Eleanor Rigby, uh, it felt like a statement very much similar to the statement of Norwegian Wood as being track two on Rubber Soul. Yeah. Um, just a continuation of this sort of uh, we, are, we are confident in our 
our expression of what we're doing musically. Yeah. And you guys are coming with us kind of thing, not mm -hmm. like we're giving all these commercial considerations at this point. Like they they must know that like people are going to engage with whatever it is that they're doing. They must have such a huge self-awareness of their their fame internationally mm -hmm. and that and that whatever that they do, people are going to going to be attracted to what they're doing, whether they're I don't think that anybody would be indifferent to what they're doing. I think that you know, right? They, yeah, they, yeah. they'll love it, or they will not love it. Um, right. But that particular song, I mean, with all the string arrangements and everything that they're doing with that, I felt that they have moved beyond a lot of their like live, live performance considerations with that. Yes. This is more of like we we have something that we want to do artistically, and we're not even going to think about how this might translate live. We just want to we want to record this and do it do it our way. Yeah. Uh, and I love this song. I really really mm -hmm. do love the song. It's a great song. Um, Paul, is that a Paul song? It's all Paul. No Beatles play on this song. It's oh, okay. just the string quartet and their voices. So they're singing on it, but there's no actual instrumentation from them, uh, which is pretty crazy to think about, especially, yeah, considering it's like song number two. Right. And this was really unheard of. It was unheard of. I, I've, I've heard people talk about Yesterday, which at this point was two albums ago. The fact that they put strings, that George Martin put strings on that would have been pretty weird to hear on the radio to hear a pop recording with that kind of classical element in it. And this one was all classical element. There was no guitar, there's no piano. So that's a huge shift for them. A huge shift in this album is just them, yeah, transitioning. This is the point. This is the turning point of them finally turning away from touring. Um, Paperback Writer, which we'll talk about after we talk about this. Paperback Writer came out before this album but there was a record around the same time. That was the last song that they ever like introduced live. Huh. So they were they introduced that as they were touring, and then once they were done with that tour, they were done with it. They were done with touring, and so they never had to fit another song into their set list ever again. That's wild, right? Mm -hmm. And you and you can tell. So a little bit of background is that Brian Epstein, their manager, he wanted them to continue this formula of having a movie with an, with an album uh, that they had done with, they had done with Hard Day's Night and they had done with Help. I assume he was going like one-on, one-off, so because Rubber Soul didn't have a film. But anyway, his idea was that they were going to have a movie that was going to go with this album. And the Beatles vetoed it. They didn't want that to happen. And so they ended up with this three months built into their schedule that had been planned for this filming of this movie mm -hmm. and now they could do whatever they wanted and so they used a lot of that time to make this record and in the past they had done a lot more pre-production so like you know rehearsing and and arranging stuff beforehand sounds like on rubber soul they might have done less they might have done more kind of you know fooling around the studio but mm -hmm. in this one I think the arrangements didn't exist really before they went to the studio. So they were able to really take their time with it and spend whole days of just trying things out. And it really shows. But it, So it shows in that and that they have a lot of time and they're able to be very creative. And on top of that, like you said, there's no, there's really no thought of how are we going to play this live. Because right. they're not going to take a string quartet with them. They're not going to play stuff backwards. Right. They're not going to have a horn section. Right. right. These are things right. that like a band that's not trying to play these things live those are decisions that that band can now make. Right. That makes a lot of sense. 
Although I wonder how upset uh, Paul's grandfather was about the lack of not being in another movie. <laughs> yeah, that guy. <laughs> I think he did okay. I think he was a pretty well-known actor at that point. He was a, uh, what did they keep on calling him in that? He's very clean. He's a very clean very man. Clean. Yeah. Yes. Very clean old man. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I noticed, sorry, uh, I noticed with this song, I didn't, I didn't observe that like none of the Beatles played their instruments on this, that it was exclusively strings, but I definitely noticed the lack of percussion. Mm. Um, this album, like each song, it's just the songs are extremely diverse. Like, the group that recorded Taxman does not sound like the same group that recorded Eleanor Rigby. Like, they sound so different. But somehow there is, like, a common thread. And I was like, oh, maybe it's the maybe it's the drums. But then with this one without that, no, it's not that. But I think it maybe is their vocals or maybe it's just them. Maybe it's just, like, their songwriting or something. Mystery to be solved. Yes. We're trying. Maybe we'll solve it. We're trying to. Yeah, yeah, we're the mystery team trying to solve that, right? <laughs> right. We're like we're like <laughs> we're Scooby Doo team right here, <laughs> yes. trying to get the mask off of uh, <laughs> right. whoever the evil producer is behind this whole thing. <laughs> it's Phil Spector in, in the right. end. Oh, he's, no. he's the right. one. That's right. It's old. It's old Mr. Spector after all. <laughs> and he's like, I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for you meddling Beatles. That's right. <laughs> that would have been a good movie. That would have, yeah. Actually, yeah. George Martin would have. George Martin would have been the would have been the dog. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, Ringo Lord. totally would have been a uh, Shaggy, who hangs yep. out with the dog. Velma and... already had the haircut. Yep. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Boy, we're really going down a, a rabbit trail on this one, but I like it. I think we could. Maybe we could. I think that's essential, actually. Yeah, is that not what this podcast is? No, it kind of <laughs> Scooby is. Scooby Doo references. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a whole. Part I was, of it. What were you guys talking about? I wasn't talking about Scooby. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next song? Third track, sure. I'm Only Sleeping. I'm Only Sleeping. Uh, so Guess who this is? I, I have a big question mark here. Yeah. Literally in my notes, I'm like, George or John, question mark. Right. My heart said George, uh-huh. but something maybe my head told me it was John. You tell me. It's John. Okay. Mm. It's right. John. But it is very, it does feel like a George. The sentiment of the lyric Definitely feels like George. It's John's best George impression. Mm. It is, yeah. And well, the p- p- part of it, the reason that my head said this is John, is I th- got the feeling that like throughout this album, and I I know I put this in my notes ahead, but I might as well just say it right now. He feels like very tired to me throughout the album. Like yeah. you don't have the John yeah, energy anymore. It's totally changed now. So like it felt sleepy, and this was like one of the, on a on a purely like songwriting level, um, the way it's the song is presented and recorded and sung, related to the title of the song and the content of the song. I was like, this is like when you hear like in different different songwriting rooms, like, hey, you know, this is the title of the song. This is like the north star that we're heading towards. Mm-hmm. Let's write around that north star. This feels like a really good example of that because it feels very sleepy. It feels very like dreamy and and sort of yeah. like he's just kind of waking up and singing this tune. Absolutely. So so um, so I thought that was that was cool from that where there was production standpoint, writing standpoint, or all all the above. Yeah, it feels that way. And then you reference something also in a in a previous song that emerges here is these guitar solos in reverse. Mm. So. I was curious. I'm sure you have, you must have some something you could speak to about this in terms of how they were they backmasking. Like, how are they getting that sound? Because it seems like maybe this is the first time it's been done 
Yeah, this is a great song to start talking about some of these kind of uh, technical things or these uh, these revolutions in kind of the recording technology. They're on full display here. Yeah, it's John. One of the reasons he sounds like George is because they're using this new technology called VeraSpeed, which we still call, it's all digital now, but basically the idea is um, if I'm using Logic, which is my like audio workstation here, I can take everything that I'm playing or all the instruments and whatever, my entire track, and I can play it back at a l- slower or faster speed. Mm. And then I can record over it, and then we can bring it back to where it was before. So you have that ability to, like, if you record it really slow and then play it back at normal speed, it sounds very sped up. That's how they do Alvin and the Chipmunks. Hmm. Um, if Then the opposite, if you re- record it very fast and play it back at regular speed, it sounds very slow, slowed down like that. Hmm. So they did a lot of that. They use VeraSpeed a ton on this album on a few different songs. There's one more lead vocal uh, in particular, that I'll see if you can guess which one it is. Okay. But this one, John wanted to sound like a tired old man. Hmm. So they recorded this song, they slowed it down slightly, then he sang it, and then when they played it back at regular speed, it's a little bit, his voice is like a little bit tinny, hmm. and it sounds more like George. And that's one of, the, I think, the things that makes it really hard to kind of Discern. tell a difference. Yeah. That's very interesting. They They were, yeah, they were like so... They loved they loved this stuff. So uh, you're also going to hear a lot of what, what we call ADT, uh, which we also I think I've I've used this on like the home s- security system. <laughs> exactly <laughs> that. Exactly that. Just a lot of beeping. You're they didn't hear want on this anybody album. breaking in their studio. <laughs> no, I think I've used this on your vocals on some stuff that oh, you've wow. done. Okay, uh, it stands for automatic double tracking. And remember, I was saying in an earlier episode that John always kind of doubled everything he sang. Right. I think it kind of came from an insecurity. He just wanted to do that. But he hated the process of doing that. He hated having to re-sing everything really precisely. And so it says in my notes here, on April 6th of this year, this is 1966, so right before the album was finished, um, this EMI engineer so at, at the studio invented this automatic double tracking, and they just used it. Everywhere. That's and amazing. So it was... Wow. Now, I'm sure somebody at some point probably maybe came out with something around the same time. That always happens with these things. But the idea of automatic double tracking is that they run a second or or a second and third, but I think at this point it's probably just two, two tape machines. So they would have a second tape machine set up that would be a little bit delayed and then it had this kind of variable current sent to it, so it would be kind of slowing up and speeding down a little bit. Hmm. Um, I believe, I don't know if they did this at Abbey Road, but sometimes what happens is they would have an engineer go in there and just kind of bump it a little bit or kind of like move the playhead in kind of a random way so that it would sound more random and it would sound like a second take. So it was a little bit delayed. It was a little bit detuned because of the manipulation and it sounded exactly like if you use it subtly exactly like somebody double tracking that vocal or anything it could you could you know you could put it on drums if you wanted to so you're going to hear every vocal on this album pretty much double tracked you're going to hear a lot of kind of creative panning with that stuff you hear it pretty it sounds like a chorus if you know what like a chorus on an, on a vocal sounds like they're going to mm-hmm. do more of that in the future too in the next couple albums but yeah those so automatic double tracking various speed these are things that they're it's coming out right then this month basically that they're recording and they're they're using it all over the place 
And so you're hearing that on this track. This is this track, especially with those guitars. George is playing all these leads backwards, and I'm so glad to hear you saying that because that's exactly I think it seems to be exactly what him, at least him and John, were going for on that. They wanted to have this um, sense of being barely awake. Mm. And you really feel that with the song. They manipulated things enough to make it feel sleepy and kind of dreamy, like you're in kind of this altered state. Wow. So this album is, based on everything you're sharing and saying, this album is like really like a producer's, uh, like like yeah. one of the, like like almost like a Bible, basically. Like like yeah. for somebody that's in production, like there's so much that, that happened yeah. in development of ingenuity. Because of the shift. I think the shift in attitude hmm. going from we got these songs how are we gonna how are we gonna play them how are we gonna arrange them and make it work for a live context of course hmm. to now just what can we do here this is what matters what matters is what we can manipulate and capture in this room or in this studio and that's a huge I mean I, I bet to most people that to a lot of people, that probably doesn't seem like a huge difference, but I think from the perspective of, of these guys, that was a huge, huge difference, and it changes everything that you can do. Wow. And for them, it must have been somewhat refreshing, too, because, I mean, they've been, from from yeah. their residencies way back in Liverpool or wherever that they were doing Hamburg. those things, or Hamburg, yeah, yeah. up till now, now they can actually just focus on recording yeah. music in a studio and do cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they could just sleep in their own beds and then go go to the studio and, and kind of innovate. Yeah, it must have been a great time on that end. Hmm. I don't want to say they were all happy. They were probably they're in their early twenties still, so they were probably going wow. through a lot of stuff. But that's amazing. Yeah. John he was John was getting really tired of things at this point. I think I said that maybe during help. He was saying like I just can't write anymore. They they want so many songs. And he was getting so tired of the whole I think the whole machine. Mm. of the Beatles and of record label and all that stuff. And so this song is really indicative of that. And it's him just saying, I'm I'm so, I'm tired, I'm sleepy, mm. I want to go to bed. And w- this album is really, th- I mean, it's a turning point. I keep saying that. <laughs> uh, but it is in all these different dimensions because it's also the turning point where I think this is where it goes from up until this point, John has been the creative he's had the lion's share of like the songwriting and right. the creativity behind it and now it's it's probably equal maybe even a three-way tie on this album between the three of them and it's never going to go back like he'll always be you know either 50 percent or less going forward of like the creative output of the band wow um, yeah i noticed i i like when um when you take someone who's creative and like really just like a free person you know they they just like a John, basically, when you take someone like that and you're like, all right, here's the business concern and make that a priority for them or at least something that they have to think about, it like it can break that kind of a person. It just really wears on them. Yeah. I remember, I mean, it's a totally different thing, but like um, Johnny Ive, uh, who like who did a lot, of, has had a lot of the of influence over Apple's physical Apple computer, uh, Apple computers, like physical design elements over the years, like he and Steve Jobs came up with like, I want this thing to look amazing. And so Johnny Ive was like, I'll make it look beautiful. And so so he was into designing these beautiful products. And then over the years got like really, really weighed down by 
the commerce of it all. Mm. And in the past few years, I think he like he got out of he he resigned from Apple and started his own design firm, so he could start to focus on that like that stuff that he loved again, the stuff that he was passionate about. And I see that like with John in this, where what Joel was just saying, how like he, I don't know, he seems sad and yeah. like a little bit checked out from from the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I, you can hear it in the music. I mean, yeah. To me, at least, you know, as a listener, not knowing them, it's yeah, has been my takeaway for yeah. this album, which is why I said I felt like sad listening to this album, yeah. actually. Yeah, which definitely started last album, River Soul. There's a lot more melancholy, mm. just attitude. But it felt like a different stage of, like, his, I guess, grieving process, I guess, if you could kind of mm. call it that. Like, if he's feeling something within like, creative, yeah. creative side is dying it felt more angry and angsty to me, mm. you know? And yeah. now we're into this thing where it's, like, more, like, well, real yeah, depression. To give you a, a bit of hope or light at the end of the tunnel, I don't think that John's creativity dies, but we do get to see it take, I think, I don't know if it's a healthier place in his life, but... Are you going to say turning point again? <laughs> uh, it's going to take a place in his life that is a lot less... He's going to find other things that are more important to him. Hmm. So I don't think it's a sad, in the end, I don't think it's a sad story. Uh, but I think he was very, he felt very used and overextended uh, through the, through this kind of two-year period. And I think after this, he just is going to have a new relationship with his creativity and his songwriting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, so track number four, we good to move number on to four. that? Number love four. You, love you too, right? Love you too. Okay. So that sitar makes... Big old, big old feature on this tune, uh-huh. but it's a sitar in reverse, right? Uh, there's maybe some reverse sitar in there, okay. yeah. Okay. But a lot of it that I comes to mind for me is just good old, good, good old, old sitar, sitar music. Yeah. At this point, was George like learning from Ravi Shankar, or was he just like? I don't know. No, I don't know the exact timeline of them hooking up, um, and him le- learning from Ravi. But I think, but yeah, this is this out. This track is pretty much just John, or sorry, is pretty much George, and like some other Indian musicians that oh, he knew okay. that play like tabla and stuff. Well, I was wondering because I was like, boy, Ringo, Ringo's really like <laughs> broadening <laughs> his percussion like <laughs> yeah. abilities here because it was like sounded very yeah. very authentic. And my takeaway was like, it's kind of amazing. And there's no internet at this point in time, right? So they're yeah. they're engaging with world music on a level that right. it's through their international travel or or whatever to yeah. get that big or that huge as a traveling band and engage with new musical forms or styles. Yeah, and and then take some of that back and explore it and learn it. I thought that was pretty cool. I did feel that like that was yeah. that was very cool. Absolutely. I think when I was younger, I heard these sitar kind of Indian influenced songs, mm-hmm. and I thought, "Oh yeah, that's that's cool. Like it's different. It's a it's an effect." Mm. But nowadays, listen to it, and I'm like, "Hell yeah, yeah, this sounds awesome." <laughs> yeah, this. Uh... And how wild that this was, like the, the biggest biggest thing that came out that year, and it's yeah. it's featuring this. Type of music is that you can hear that double tracking, wide stereo. Oh image. yeah! So you're probably hearing you're hearing his vocal on either the left or the right, and the other channel is the one that's been messed with. Huh. When you were talking earlier about like how that was Paul's guitar solo, I was actually surprised because I'm like, oh, George was like in this mode at that point. 
And I like knowing that this one was a George song, I'm like, man, he just kept doing this thing anywhere he could on this album. (laughs) Nope, it was Paul. (laughs) Yeah, and that could, I mean, that was already in my head, and then I was doing some research, and it confirmed that it was Paul. But that's the kind of thing where it may, I don't know, it might not have been. But Mm -hmm. also, like, just by osmosis, it's like Paul. Yeah. He's, probably, he's hearing a lot of the stuff that George is doing and bringing into the studio, so there's a chance that maybe it just influenced him. Yeah. Mm. I did like uh, the rhyme there. Rhyming short with bot does not work with an American accent, but <laughs> if you're from Liverpool, short bot. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. An interesting thing that will, this will, I think, set up maybe the next couple songs um, is that Abbey Road Studios, EMI, I don't know what if what it was exactly called at this point, but the Beatles did not want to record this album at that place because it was not a state of the art recording facility. It didn't have a lot it wasn't as up to date as some of these other places. So they heard stuff that was coming out of stacks here in America and like Motown and Atlantic in New York and they heard those sounds, things that were happening in there, like, we want to go over there and record. And that almost happened. They were going to do it at Stax, and then word got out, and people just swarmed it, and it's in this little town. So, like, they called it off, and they tried to use those other ones, too, and the same exact thing happened. And so they ended up just doing it at EMI, Hmm. where they knew that they could get in and out, and they could make it happen. And I feel like, for me, that's it's one of the most interesting plot lines from this whole story of this album, is that they wanted to do it somewhere else that had better gear and was more cutting edge. They ended up doing it at EMI, and then the the techniques that they pioneered ended up changing music. Wow. <laughs> Their creativity, using what they had and using the ingenuity of the people around them, ended up being the thing that all those other studios would then try to replicate. Just amazing, Yeah, actually. Um, it reminds me of, like, what a workshop, you know, they... They didn't have the technology. It didn't exist to make someone that looked like Gollum or Smeagol. And so they just, they did, they took the people that they had Mm -hmm. in New Zealand. They named their workshop after this crazy bug cricket thing. um, And they made it happen. Yeah. And now it's like the the gold standard for, I mean, all of animation. Yeah. I think you'll find that in a lot of fields. That definitely happened with Silicon Valley. Uh, Happened in a lot of, any anywhere there's... People that are really innovating, I think that they're they're they can't afford, or that for some reason they can't gain access into these hubs or these cultural centers of what they th- where they think everything's going on. So they have to make it happen themselves, and what they end up doing uh, ends up changing the world. And so in this in this particular with this album, they used um, it's called a Fairchild six hundred and sixty compressor or limiter, and we still use it. Nowadays, I use it on a lot of things. I have a plug-in version of it because they're $30,000 now. Ooh. But a lot of people will look back on this as it was the first kind of widely used compressor as we know it now, or especially um, there's a stereo version of it as well that they started to use it to compress whole mixes and it ended up contributing to, toward like a tighter, more compressed sound. And when I say compressed, what I mean is that it takes stuff that something that might might have been very loud and makes it so it's much more even, or it takes something that's very soft and makes it much more audible and and even. It, it basically evens things out, and so when you have something that's more compressed, it's more in your face, it's more um, it has more energy to it, and so they did that using 
that and then uh, close miking. So I'll, up until this point, a lot of times that they when they would record like a drum set or a horn section, they would put one mic over the drum set and may, maybe a second one on the kick drum or something. Same thing with the horn section. They would maybe set up a couple mics and then mic the whole section. For the horn section in this album that's on a later song, they put those mics straight up on every single horn. Hmm. And with the drums, they put a mic on every single drums like we have now ever since. And they were able to do that because of this, because of compression. They were able to to put something really, really close to something loud and then kind of attu- attenuate the dynamics from it, meaning just make it a little bit softer and a little more mi- uh, mixable into the rest of the of the track. And so those are some of those the things, those innovations, or these these technologies that they were that they were coming up with, that were the rest of the world would take notice of, and would would change things for a lot of people. Those are things that on the last album weren't necessarily there hmm. as much as this one. And to that point, how so? At this at this point, has technology made it so that they have how many tracks are they able to use now in a studio? To, if they're if they're isolating each. Like yeah. drum tom or cymbal or whatever that they're doing to close mic these things. Like how many, yeah. how many tracks are now available to their to right. record on? They would probably do something like this. They would put a a mic on the kick. They would put a mic on the snare. Maybe two overheads, and then they would have like a bass and a guitar and another guitar, and then you're up to eight or something like that. And then what would happen is you would bounce all of those parts down into one track. So you'd have a mono drum track, and then you'd have the guitar and the bass and the guitar. So now you have four tracks, and you have four new tracks, right? You'd have to always bounce stuff down. That's how they always did that. And and there are other creative ways that they could do that. But, yeah, I believe they were, they were on eight at this point. Um, they might have been on four, but... That seems crazy to that me. That seems crazy, yeah. yeah. Hey, everybody, Future Joel here. It was just four tracks. I double-checked. Um, that does still seem crazy. Uh, next album, they will be graduating to using technically more, but we'll get into that next episode. And for, like for listeners that aren't like quite aware <laughs> of what we're talking about, now with digital recording software, you're, yeah. you're basically unlimited to the amount of tracks that you can, yeah. mm-hmm. you can record however much or however little. Um, yeah. But back then there were parameters that made them be inspired to develop means or ways to be able to record more Mm-hmm. Uh, individual tracks. Right? Yeah, is, that, is that my explaining it right? Absolutely. And I think next album, next album is Sergeant Pepper's, and when we, I think it's going to be really interesting to hear that, knowing that that was either eight or four tracks, because what they did on that album is so kind of expansive. And nowadays we use 120, 150 tracks routinely on stuff, and. To think that they could do what they did using such a limited amount is really, it just shows how much kind of hard work and how much savvy they had to have. Man. Yeah. Next track is Here, There, and Everywhere. And so this is the first time in the the, the album that I felt clued in that these guys were growing apart. And mm. I can't really tell you why. I don't even really know how to explain it. It was just like kind of a... Just kind of like a something that felt like it transcended the music that I felt like as I listened to the rest of the record, it just feels like they're committed to the Beatles on some level at varying degrees, but yeah. they're not as good of friends anymore with one another and they're growing apart and going in different directions and you can just kind of hear the cracks yeah. in their 
personal personal relationships to one another it seems to transcend the song sound in the songs so i don't really have anything to to share about like the song itself i was just like oh man i feel like i'm just being hit with this and i can't escape it now sure yeah i get that i think this um it's starting to happen where paul is playing a lot of the instruments on his own songs as we said george kind of did that too and so you you'll you'll see that that's going to kind of come and go that's definitely um a storyline to kind of keep track of because that okay. will be something I think that ends up kind of creating some barriers. We're, we're going to start seeing some more stuff like that where it's clearly one person kind of doing their own thing. With mm. Paul, it's clearly this these kind of ballads, very pretty, complicated songs. And with George, it's always something much, usually something that's Indian-influenced um, and something that's very drony and it has his kind of sonic, his sonic signature on it. Uh, I think what's interesting about this song, Here, There, and Everywhere, first of all, I love this song. I, th- I mean, when I was, especially when I was younger, I was an absolute Paul McCartney kid. Um, he was my favorite. And so I love just the chord progression of this song. It's really pretty, and it's very, like, you know, it, it has this really interesting, uh, well, for lack of a better word, progression to it. It kind of goes through these different these different changes, and it's not very predictable. And but at the same time, it sounds so kind of natural and and beautiful. I think it's also interesting. This is track five. You're talking earlier about you know lyric mm-hmm. content. Tax man is first, which some people have said may have kind of contributed to punk rock starting. Okay, all right. Because <laughs> yeah, it was a protest tune. I can, I right. can see that. Yeah. yeah, sure. And then Eleanor Rigby, which is about a spinster dying or a priest preaching a sermon that no one will hear. Hmm. And then I'm Only Sleeping, which is about John being tired, basically, and being an old man and feeling that way. And then Love You Too, which is very different and is kind of sexual. It's very, he, it feels like it's very kind of this immediate kind of sexual gratification thing. So, like, those are the first four songs on this record. And so, that's a huge, huge departure from even the last album, you know, the first song, Driving My Car, which is still kind of a cute love story. And then Norwegian Wood is, it's a a complicated story. Yeah, but it's still love. It's still like a kind of a romance thing, right? So, this one, we got four. Four songs that are about really different things before we get to like a love song hmm. uh, with song five. So I think that's interesting. And I can imagine being a fan or at least someone who's aware of the Beatles and getting to this point and being and just being like, wow, this is a different, this is a different thing. This is a different speed. One thing that I got from um, everyone's favorite crowdsourced encyclopedia um, is that Wikipedia? <laughs> Ah, you dropped uh, the name, Ian. Sorry, am I not supposed to? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, is I, I was reading about um, Paperback Writer, and it, I, I thought this was fascinating, was that Paul's aunt, one of Paul's aunts, was like... Aunt Lil. Aunt Lil. She, he, she challenged him and basically said, like, you always write about love. Like, what else is there? Huh. And so I... As I was listening to that to this album today, it was definitely influenced by that. I'm like, all right, that's not a love song. That's not a love song. That's okay. We got maybe a love song here finally. Like, wow. I think, yeah, I think, I think they kind of challenged themselves to do something else. I think it was part of maybe their growing up. You know, it's coming of age. It's like, yeah. all right, you know, you said they're in their early twenties. Like, it's not just guys and girls. It's not just that romantic yeah. relationship anymore. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> Which brings us to one of the all-time 
Ringo performances. I'm glad I nailed this one. I was like, this has got to be the Ringo man. <laughs> it's the silly one. It is the silly one. Yellow Submarine. Mm-hmm. Well, what can I say about this one? Um, my initial thought was <laughs> like, George Martin is like, what, what, what am I doing with these guys right now, right? Like, yeah. I, I, it doesn't feel like George Martin had a lot of influence in this tune. I don't know. I have no <laughs> idea. It was just sort of like I felt like he just let them yeah. run free. But I, I love the song as an experience. Actually, I didn't love the song, but I love it as an experience because it's memorable. And I particularly loved like all the additional sound things that they incorporate into yeah. it. Like the yeah. you've got the waves and the water sounds, you've got the clanging glasses and the people and the trumpets. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is like the predecessor of like White Zombie or something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know? Just like pulling stuff out and like yeah. giving you an experience. Fully. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I did I did enjoy it a lot. Yeah. And I appreciate that Ringo, I mean, it's one of the most probably most well-known, maybe not well-known known songs of like people hearing it, but people know the name of the song, mm. undoubtedly. Yeah. Like, and there's something attached to it that, that people are like, oh, Yellow Submarine is a Beatles song. Even if you've never heard it, you know right. about the tune. Yeah. There would be a movie... I don't think we're going to cover the album Yellow Submarine. We might do it as a bit of a an add-on to another one. They did an album called Yellow Submarine that went along with the movie they had this animated movie that that was called Yellow Submarine, but they it would there'd be a lot of retooling, so I believe Nowhere Man was on there. They had a mm. lot of kind of their more psychedelic songs. Uh yeah, this was written as like a children's song by Paul and John for Ringo. I think they thought of him when they were writing it. So I don't know if that was I assume that he had some say in that. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't just like, hey, Ringo, you're gonna sing the kids song. <laughs> I guess they had lyrical help from Scottish singer Donovan. Apparently he contributed Sky of Blue and Sea of Green, that line. He is not credited as a songwriter. Uh Did I think that it was cause an issue? I don't think so. I okay. think that happened all the time. I don't all think right. people were as vindictive about that stuff back then. <laughs> I, I'm glad you said that this was written as a kid song because um, I I was a nanny back in the day and I don't believe in kids music, <laughs> just like as <laughs> on principle. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, there is no kids bop, just listen to the pop songs. Uh, and I was playing this album with a three-year-old in the car and he he was cracking up at this song and I'm like, this is kind of like a kid's song. And his favorite part was the like the little dot dot dot. He thought that was so yeah. funny. Yeah. So I'm glad to know that it's a kid's song because it really feels like a kid's song. <laughs> <laughs> when I was listening to this song today, I have a lot of love for this song. Like I feel like I I remember it really well and I listen to it a lot. And there's something to it. It's not like you were saying, like you you enjoy it, like it's a good experience. Yeah, it's not this total like oh they're do- they're experiencing something. Right, they wake me up when the next song starts, kind of thing, which occasionally happens on some of their records. But yeah, I thought this one was, I was surprised at just how listenable I think it was to me still. And actually, yeah. this has been a theme for 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 me at least in listening with Ringo. Ringo is the, this like reliable commercial break on every single album. Like, but this may be yes. like so far like his standout moment. Like the previous ones were like country songs. Right. This one's like a standout moment for him, where it's like, yeah, oh, this is a refreshing commercial break outside yeah. of what the other guys are doing. And maybe it's it's appropriate for his personality too, because he seemed like the one guy who was 
maybe, I don't want to say he was like the only guy that was fun, but he was clearly like, he didn't seem like he traveled into as much of the introspection yeah. as the other guys did. Yeah, he didn't take himself too seriously. Right. Yeah, sure. I think his identity wasn't as wrapped up in all of this as much as, as theirs was. Right. It's interesting listening to it now. There's so little instrumentation on it. It's kind of just an acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. And like I think there's like a like a big marching drum. I didn't really hear like piano. There's just so much other stuff going on. I think that you assume that it's a more complicated arrangement than it is. It's kind of just a guitar strumming along and Ringo singing, and then all this other stuff of all this ocean noise and whatever. Yeah, yeah. I wonder. I wonder where they got those sounds. If they like went and they pulled a mic out and like recorded. I think a lot of it they did. They just did it in the studio. They they yeah. kind of made. They brought stuff in, and it seems like they kind of spent a whole day just, like, Make, partying, just, yeah, having fun and, and all doing passes of weird sounds. That's Ugh, cool. Mondays, yeah. am I right? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> That's their Monday. <laughs> yes. Um, interesting note, while we're on the psychedelic uh, page, uh, the cover art for this was by Klaus Vormann. Oh, Klaus. Who is a, an artist in his own right. You mean for Revolver, the album? Yes, the okay. album art for this album. Uh, he played in some different bands, but uh, it won the Grammy for Best Album Art. Cool. In 1967, the next year. Are those real, his real eyes and lips on the album cover? Um, I believe it's George in the bottom right, maybe. Oh, yes. Pasted Sorry, I know there. what you're talking about. I think they, yes, they, he, he made these drawings and then put like cutouts of their eyes yeah. and lips into them. Yeah. Yeah, but not, yeah. not all of them, just like Maybe, some. Maybe yeah, George. Interesting. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. Okay. Yeah. Is that still a, is that still a category for, for the Grammys? Like best album art? I think it is. It, I think it's mm-hmm. now, it's like packaging, oh. liner notes, that kind of thing. Yeah. That's, that's pretty stinking that's, cool. That's still a Grammy. Yeah. yeah. I think, I, I think I would take a dive into that and see. Like who's won the past yeah. 30 years? That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's got to be wildly different than what, I mean, who knew it could sound like anything. She, she said, said, she said. said. Speaking of psychedelic. Oh, yes. Well, if I was a parent and my daughter was listening <laughs> to this tune, I'd be really frightened, actually. Yeah. I'd be like, oh, man, she's getting ready. She's, she's heading to the West Coast. Uh-huh. Never going to see her again kind of thing like mm-hmm. that that's it's funny too because i was like thinking like this song is like a song for a runaway like like a girl that wants to run away and then and i'm thinking that like first verse like it's giving yeah. me that vibe and then like the third verse he talks about like she's got to keep moving or something i don't i'm paraphrasing i can't remember yeah. exactly what the lyric was it's like oh she's got to get out of here i'm like oh yeah here's that like that whole theme of going back to the sound of the song and the production of the song and mm-hmm. the style of the writing replicates yeah. like what the song is about. Sure. Which is very This song cool. I love this is a one of the songs I think about when I think of John. John had this thing where he would write these weird timings into his songs. So like here we'll listen to a little bit of it. All right. You know, try counting this. She said you don't understand what I said. I said no 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 you're wrong. When I was a Hmm. Everything was right. <laughs> wow. Everything was It just goes in the it goes into three for like a couple measures and comes back. But like John always did that. He was it was always like he wasn't ever constrained by like whatever the time signature of the song was. He would always be like, No, if I want to sing this note longer, I'll just play an extra beat on the guitar, you know. That's kind of cool. I mean, yeah. I should, I used to hate cool. that. I, That's I was, you used to hate it? Yeah. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, when I was a kid, because I, I was Paul. I was a Paul guy. <laughs> right, right, right. I was like, no, it all goes in a row like this, and then you can count it, and it's in a key. Yeah. And now I'm like, yeah, that's my favorite part about John, is mm. that he would add these little measures of five or or three or whatever in, into a 4-4 four, four song, and then... Very indicative of uh, his personality. Like mm-hmm. That's like maybe one of the ways you see old yes, John absolutely. emerge in this this era. Yeah, he's a free thinker. Um, Paul, I don't know why, I couldn't find out. Paul walked out of this session. Whoa. There's some kind of disagreement, and George played bass. He probably had to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Probably. Or he might have, he might have not liked that time change. (laughs) (laughs) We see, we, we said we were going to discover something. We have unmasked Spectre's plans today, folks. (laughs) The early seeds of these plans. I dig that song. I like it a lot. I like it too. I like it a lot. I like it a lot. We moving on to Good Day Sunshine. Good Day Sunshine. Good Day Sunshine. I don't think that this is a cover song, but it felt really familiar to me. And I think that Mm. that also is like one of the gifts of these guys is like they were able to write songs that as soon as you hear it, you feel like, Mm -hmm. oh, this is a familiar tune, but it's not. You're hearing it for the first time. And that is... yeah part of the essence of what made so many of their songs go to number one is their I, ability to just right. like grab, like, I don't I don't even know how they harness it. They I just would challenge it. that, or I would say, I think you're, what you're hearing, if I had to guess, is that they influence songwriting so much mm. and that their songs are so ubiquitous that now you hear these songs and you're like, oh, I feel like I've heard that. It's because mm. their DNA, like you were saying earlier, is in everything. And this song is one of these songs that you'll hear I would put money on the fact that you've probably crossed paths with this song several times just because placements, commercials, that kind of thing, yeah. Makes sense. Makes but I sense. think I'm, there, there's almost no one else I'd say that about where I'm like, no, I think I don't think that they're good at that. I think that music has shaped itself around them. Hmm. I think that's what you're hearing. But I feel like that's maybe part of what it is, you know. Man, I wonder if you'd feel that way if you, in 66, you know, if we were around then and felt it then, like... It may not have felt that way, but it feels that way now because everyone has just learned from them, you know. Makes sense. Yeah. I'll go along with that. It could also be wrong, though. It could be. Because you're, you're totally right. But I, in as far as talking about this song, I'm like, it's probably just that you've heard the song, too. Like Yeah, like a, like a Volkswagen commercial or something. Yeah. Maybe not, but something. <laughs> maybe. Something. Yeah. <laughs> maybe Audi. Maybe Toyota. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe Mazda. Definitely not Ford. No, not Ford. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Um. I think this is maybe the most boring song in the album, mm. which is funny because I'm like, especially compared to like Beatles for Sale. Yeah. It's kind of funny to think that this, because this is like a perfectly good song, but I it's, think there's just so much, so many more interesting, weird things happening. It's wildly accessible yeah. as far as the song goes. I feel like this is, um, first of all, it's a perfect track eight. Um, and I think also it's, it's reminiscent of the Beatles that we knew going into this album. Like if, you know, you, you can kind of picture the the four Liverpudlians in their suits on the on the mm-hmm. stage just kind of bopping around to this one. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think, I mean, you can't really picture them bopping around to Eleanor Rigby or here, there, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. What would make a song? So you said it's a perfect track eight. Like, I'm curious mm. what, what makes a perfect track eight song. It's one that you... You don't show up for, but you kind of sometimes would stay for. Oh, man. That sounds like that should be on a sticker or something. <laughs> <laughs> Good one, Jess. <laughs> yeah. 
I think, I mean, I think of, all right, here's my experience with a track eight. I was, uh, I was big into Destiny's Child when they were, when they were out, you know, up and coming in the late nineties, early two thousands, I'll say. Okay. And, uh, got the albums and listened to them start to finish and track eight on one of their albums was like Survivor. And it wasn't the single and it wasn't like one that they were plugging at the time. But I was like, oh, this is the one. Another, I, it, It's either Survivor or Jumpin' Jumpin'. And I'm like, this song. I am here for this song. I didn't show up for this. I showed up for Independent Woman or whatever. But here I am and this is the one. Oh. Mm. Yeah. What a good description. Yeah, that's great. So it's kind of like the the diamond in the rough, the hidden the hidden, hidden one. Gem. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. When it starts you're like, "Oh, okay. I'll stick around through this. I'll see what's after this." Yeah. 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 It's like the one that no one believes in. It's kind of a dark horse. Yeah. 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 So next song is Your Bird Can Sing. This and is Your Bird Can and Sing. Your Bird Can Sing. Yeah. This is the only song I didn't have any takeaway from. I don't know really? why. Yeah, I just I, it just didn't engage me. I just felt like it was just there. And I, I, I'm yeah. like, I, I would love to hear Yeah, and I felt the same way. You did? Yeah, I was like, well, that song's there, sure. Yeah. That's Again, a perfect yeah. track nine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it was, it felt like every bit filler, which is which is an understatement for the Beatles. I recognize that. Like like there's, there's really no fi- yeah. filler, but it just didn't feel like. Sure. Compared to these compared other Compared to these ones. other yeah. tunes, it just was there. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a John one. I, I, I guess he he wrote most of it and and sings it. There's dual lead guitars by Paul and John on this one. That harmonized lead that kind of comes back at, like through the song. Hmm. I feel like that's kind of the most notable thing about it. Like you said, I think it it doesn't say much. It's kind of like a brag or like a diss track almost. It it's is like, okay. This sounds like a rubber soul track too. Mm. Yeah, I like this song. Yeah. I I don't I agree that it's not much to write home about, but it's got those it's I mean I think Paul and John playing guitar together is kind of cool. Um I think the vocals are great way. too. Yeah, I think the 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 harmonies are awesome, but I agree it doesn't have a lot of maybe, doesn't have a lot of meat and potatoes. Maybe it's one of those ones that like grows on you maybe like with more listens. Could be, yeah. I also know that this was like back in the day. Like this is exactly what I would have loved when I was gotcha. thirteen. It was this kind of song. Yeah, more than like a good day sunshine or a she said she said. Mm. I find like so my experience with this album on a whole is that I this was playing in my house growing up. My parents would play this. I did not know it was the Beatles, but like the Beatles was a thing. You know, this ethereal prominence in my in in the ether that I didn't know about. But then, like, when I sat down and intentionally listened to the Beatles, it happened to be, like, this is so hack of me. But it was that album one that was, like, all of their number ones. And I'm like, oh, I know this one. Oh, I know this one. And this this album, like, I probably could sing along to every single song on this wow. album just because it was so in my life and I didn't really – another Beatles song. Um, 
I, the, uh-huh. <laughs> like I grew up with this song, this this whole album, and so every single one of these songs has like popped out at me at different times. Every single mm. song has grown on me for different reasons, and so I don't know if this is maybe just my parents' favorite album, <laughs> and I've got that nostalgic feeling about it. But like, yeah, I love I love this whole album, and as much as I'm like, yeah, track nine and your break and sing whatever, like who cares? I'm like, it does have a special place in my heart though, like mm. just because it was there and it was the Beatles even though I didn't know it was. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. It's cool context. And a big, uh, re- big reason why she's here sharing about this album today. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Track nine is why I'm here. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, something I think that's interesting too, from what I can tell this album, it had a couple big hits on it. Eleanor Rigby I believe was number one. Yellow Submarine would eventually become number one. But this was not a huge success, like like Beatlemania was over at this point. Of course, the, the concerts were still a pretty turbulent affair. <laughs> like, it was really difficult for them. The, all the girls were still screaming and stuff. But, like, I, was, I looked at the Billboard Top 100 songs from this year, and, like, they had these number ones, but they were pretty buried far down the list. And I think we're starting to see them again... Turning the corner, or what, what did I say? <laughs> Turn, uh, turning, turning point. point. Turning point. Yeah. Um, they're definitely kind of turning a page here to like <laughs> that. Like they're becoming more of an influential band than than a hugely successful pop group. Remember, we were talking about this earlier. How it, the Beatles is kind of like if One Direction or BTS turned into like this indie band and yeah. turned into Radiohead. That's kind of what it is. Wow. I'm picturing so, like, John Mayer. Like he was, he was the like girls fainting over him, sure. pop prince, you know, and then he turned into like John Mayer trio and played with the Grateful Dead, and you know, I think he turned he turned a corner for yeah. sure. Yeah, and he still has his way. audience, and he's still kind of innovating. But yeah, yeah, that's I would say in today's terms, maybe it's not great because who knows? Maybe the kids don't know Radiohead, but it's like <laughs> if you had one, let's say. Slightly older reference, if you had like a Backstreet Boys that turned into Radiohead, that's yeah. kind of what the Beatles were. Right. And so I mm. think what we're seeing now is that progression into like, they're not going to have these math, they're not going to have I Want to Hold Your Hand, um, maybe on this album. The, th- the crazy thing is they will though, because what's coming on the next couple albums will will be that they will have more of that. But this album is kind of an under the radar album hmm. for them which is crazy but like looking at it now it makes sense it's it's hugely influential but more influential from an artistic standpoint rather than like a cultural touchstone yeah so, like with a different audience yeah yeah musicians it's kind of mm-hmm. like people talk about the sex pistols or the clash or the ramones the ramones is the big one where they're like they didn't have huge success but everybody who loved the ramones started their own band mm. that's what that's the thing that people say about the ramones and this album feels kind of like that, where it's like, if you were into this album, you probably tried to do this on your own. It was really important to you. It, you weren't just buying it because you heard it on the radio. But I, I did write down some of the top six songs of 1966, and I think it is really interesting, especially given what we've already heard, but a couple of these songs coming up. Uh, California Dreamin' was the number one song. Hmm. What Becomes of the Brokenhearted, Last Train to Clarksville by the Monkees, Reach Out, I'll Be There by The Four Tops. These Boots Are Made for Walkin' by Nancy Sinatra. Uh, when a Man Loves a Woman by uh, Sledge, Percy Sledge. Is his first name? Um, uh, Sledge. Sounds, sounds, sounds right. By Mr. Sledge. 
Um, but like those are all, I know all those songs, yeah. but the only one that even comes close, like California Dreamin' and Last, Last Train to Clarksville sound 60s, sound late 60s even, but they're so mainstream. Yeah. Versus... Eleanor Rigby? Eleanor Rigby, <laughs> wow. Tomorrow Never Knows, uh, I'm Only Sleeping, Yellow Submarine. I mean, this stuff is like... Way out. This is way ahead of all of those things. So, like, we, we're, we're witnessing them taking these big steps. And we haven't even gotten to the... I mean, the next album will be, like, the... It's beyond... Like, this is the turning point. Next album is, like, the <laughs> landing point. Okay. Or, like, the, the event that will happen that will kind of change everything. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait. Me neither. I can't wait till the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, man, Mad Men is so good. <laughs> um, all right. Where were we? Where were we? Andrew Bergensing. Yeah. Yes. Andrew Bergensing. Yep. Uh, that was track nine. Yes. For No One is the next track. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. This one's as Paul as it gets. Yep. And it's uh, to me, it felt similar to Yellow Submarine a little bit for wow. some reason. Um, wow. And actually, when I was listening to this tune, now, as good as an album this is, I, I felt that. The album feels disjointed to me a little bit. But yeah, I totally agree. And this is one, this is just Paul and Ringo's drums. Oh, really? On this song. Like, he's playing everything. Huh. Which I think what the other guys didn't love that trend so moving they, forward. And so when this would happen, would they, like, just kind of, would, like, Paul just say, like, I'm going in and recording this track on my own? And they'd be like, okay, whatever. Or, I don't know. They're in their mid-20s, so I don't, yeah. I don't, I think they were 25, maybe 26 at this point. Maybe even younger. So, I mean, relationally. Yeah, head full of steam, mm-hmm. these guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's a good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this particular song, like, this guts me, this song. It's the song of yeah. a woman who, like, basically steals herself against the pain of that she's experienced in a love relationship. And as a result of her stealing herself to that her partner like the relationship ends early uh and it could have been something really special and i'm like oh my gosh like any woman can relate to this like you know to to love is to and honestly any person can relate to this to to love is to open yourself up to that pain yeah and and you can make the choice to endure that pain but reap the benefits of that love relationship or to call it to just be like i'm out there are no tears for you. Man. Yeah, the presence of this and Eleanor Rigby, I think, show that Paul is probably going through some stuff. Yeah. But I think also really he's testing the boundaries of what he can create, I think, lyrically in songs. He's getting so sad and so, like, I think sentimental is the wrong word, but I think he's just he's using that color on, of his, you know, on his paintbrush so pointedly, this, like, Super melancholy, super sad. It's almost like an angst. And maybe yeah. that's just like the age that he was at, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, other people are 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 wailing and, and thrashing and, and you know, screaming in their music. He's kind of pouring his angst into into these kind of lyrics. It's kinda of being more kind of like an Elliot Smith or like a hmm. Morrissey kind of in that way. He's striking me as kind of this. Which is interesting because he's not really he doesn't come John is much more that 
personality, we think, long-term. But I think that Paul really does that with his lyrics on this album. Wow. I think John is is long-term depressive, and mm-hmm. Paul is momentary emotional. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, he feels, he clearly feels very deeply. Yeah. I think that Paul, too, like, he's very empathetic. I think that comes mm. across where he writes these characters and these stories that have a lot of... Yeah, like you were saying, this deep meaning that people can really relate to and he can kind of put himself in other people's shoes or maybe he's he's really living this as well and he's just doing a good job of kind of disguising it. Yeah, I thought the arrangement on this was interesting too because like he talks a lot about the way that, you know, this relationship ends prematurely, that like it gets cut short yeah. and the ending of the song is like, it just kind of stops, it cuts short <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, that checks yeah. out, yeah. That might be, yeah. Wouldn't be at all surprised if that was intentional. Yeah, I'm definitely going to go back and listen to that one now. That like you've talked about it that way, because I wasn't. I, I guess I, I was over, yeah. sh- overshadowed by hmm. sure something else that I was feeling with the song. I didn't really give it the type of listen I probably should mm. have given it. So yeah. maybe that's what I'm here for. Not track nine, but this. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. Track ten. I don't know. Well, your description of it, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, it's like right up my alley. Alley, you know, I want yeah. to be heartbroken when I. Yeah, when I'm not when I'm done listening to it, it's too. really fascinating looking at this album the way that we are because it is this transition. This and Rubber Soul are this transition point in their career, but we're seeing we're looking at it through this kind of microscopic lens at every every song. Um, but it's interesting thinking about it like stepping back and looking at it where we were just three albums ago. Right, it's just light years away. Totally. And, like, just the fact that this album exists is kind of a miracle that people could kind of push themselves this far, especially when there's no precedent for this stuff. Mm. It's pretty nuts. It's pretty nuts, yep. Dr. Robert. Dr. Robert. Uh, Takeaway was uh, similar to The Taxman to me, like, in terms of style. So I was wondering Mm -hmm. what their writing process was like for the project, like if they would, like, have these inspired days where, like, they'd write a couple songs uh, if there's any history about that because it seemed like there's some similarities of some things where I was wondering like okay was this written around the same time as the tax man or is this yeah I don't know the B side of paperback writer was a song called rain and I was like oh this is just another version of tax man which is just another version of Dr. Robert like they're all like I don't know they had the same idea three times kind of put yeah put out three similar songs I agree yeah, they were they were definitely kind of hitting that drum. And then drive my car from the last one is a mm, little like that yeah. as well. Yeah, it was it was working for them That's for sweet. sure. They, they was they 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 found this gear where they're like, oh, we can write songs like this. This is a song about a doctor who prescribes amphetamines. Okay. To people, I think it was based on a I real guy. I didn't get that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> this feels kind of like a Guns N' Roses song lyrically. <laughs> Uh, feels kind of like you know, yeah, Mr. Brownstone. Or yeah, yeah. <laughs> good point, Doctor Robert. You can figure, you can picture Axel being like Doctor. Yeah, Robert. <laughs> 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 yeah, they call you Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> you know who you are. Like, open up wide. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when the guitar solo comes right. in. Right. Like slide guitars and <laughs> Yeah. If y'all could see how Joel just airplaned an amphetamine into somebody's mouth. Like, like, like pretending <laughs> to do it. Wow. 
Yeah. It was yeah. awesome. I'll yeah. never forget that Axel. in my whole life. It was, was Axel, great. really. Yeah. 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 You were just channeling him. All right. Uh, I want to tell you. I want to tell you. Next up. Okay. Next up. Uh, let's see. Okay. This to me, again, um, it's interesting. What's, what's just transcending all the music to me is just like where they're at personally. I feel like what I'm hearing. I'm, like, I'm not like even like paying attention to lyrics at this sure. point. You know? It's yeah. just like so for one, like there's really interesting keys not the actual key of the song, but keys, choices, and verses. There's like all this tension and discord mm, that's being yeah. played. Um, there's just that laziness to the vocals, which might be the same thing that they did in that other song about sleeping, where mm. they, where they, I don't know for sure, but it seems like the, the vocals are so lazy, but that it seems like it has a similar feel to yeah. the um, uh, I'm Only Sleeping song. You can hear... George playing his Stratocaster again. I talked about that on the last album. It's not a comp, but you can tell that for all the you guitar people out there, it's definitely a different, that opening riff. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a, a Strat. I don't understand what Paul was thinking with the piano on this. Like, oh, yeah. he was he was somewhere else. If that is, if that is Paul, right. feels like a John choice. Even the piano I, before this moment right here, like, it's all, it, <laughs> they were just trying, like, let's just make, like, let's just plunk it out. Let's just throw yeah. our hands on and see what happens and then play it over and over. Yeah, that's, I mean, it, is this a John song? Because I felt like, like, I just, feel, I don't hear, like, passion driving the experimentation of the this. This is George. This is George? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Which, to me, is interesting because this is, I guess, his third song. On the record, so I guess it isn't a ton, but it feels like he got some big cuts on this. It's yeah, it doesn't. It seems like a pretty mediocre song, as far as yeah. which is why it's it's surprising that it's a George song because you'd think that hmm. his songs would have to be good to get on the record, sure, because hmm. there's maybe a higher standard, right? It's just a weird tune. I agree. <laughs> I kind of yeah. wonder if they they were like this song is boring, and so they just made the. <laughs> <laughs> like made the harmonies and <laughs> instrumentation yeah. just like let's just make that weird let's just do something with mm-hmm. it so the song is less boring so people can hear something maybe yeah. or i mean they could have like again like it's not quite like a commercial break but could be like one of those tunes where they're just setting it up so that the next one hits the ear of the listener where it's like mm. <laughs> makes it even better it's a palate cleanser yeah the next yeah. one does feel yeah it's a it's a different vibe for sure Got to get you into my life. Mm-hmm. Okay, is the next track. Yeah. So where I felt like John's steam is like some sense like running out a little bit. Yeah. He's displaced on this. I feel like Paul is just he 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 feels like passionate. Like he's enjoying the process of finding his voice in this season. He's like discovering new directions for the group, and and this song feels indicative of that to me. Mm-hmm. It is Paul singing it, right? Yeah. Okay. That would have been a total <laughs> fail if it was like, well, actually, this was John. I'm like, oh. This one's a Ringo. Yeah. Oh, it's Ringo. <laughs> yeah. So I really, well, I think this is a really good song. Yeah. And his vocal performance, too. I love, yeah, it's every a once in a while, there's like these songs that he just like, him, well, John and some of the earlier stuff, and now Paul's like really mm-hmm. pushing it. You know, Paul has a great screaming that. voice. He does. When he, when he goes for it, uh-huh. he sounds fantastic. Yeah, drive my. I keep referencing drive my car for different reasons, but drive my car is a great. It's him just kind of like howling. Um, this and oh her, darling. 
Oh, do, yeah, of course. Yeah, we yeah. haven't gotten there yet. But oh, yeah. sorry. Spoiler um, alert. He screams <laughs> again. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the most classic early example is uh, I saw her standing there. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's got a great kind of rock and roll voice, but he he doesn't always use it often. He, he has a great soft voice, a great rock and roll voice. It's that middle. If he stays in between those lines, sometimes it, it can get a little vanilla. You know, mm-hmm. it, gets, it gets a little bit like... What would be an example of that vanilla sound? Uh, well, what was that last one? For no one. Like it's a little mm. bit, it, it's right in the middle of his range, whereas John can make that kind of song maybe a yeah. little bit more interesting. I get what you're but saying. I just, I just noticed that about Paul. I hadn't really thought about that before, but I feel like when he really goes for it or is very, like Eleanor Rigby, where he's very reserved, very quiet, or very gentle, those are his, he's at the ends of the spectrum. It's like yesterday and mm. this song. Yeah. Good point. Either really pushes or really Mm -hmm. restrains himself. Just wait till White Album. White Album, there will be, you'll see, there's there's a great, there's a great A-B comparison of of him on that album. Oh, that's exciting. Um, He wrote this after seeing Stevie Wonder play. It's maybe not not a surprise. Oh, that checks out. Really? It's, yeah, it definitely feels like a, it's like a Motown inspired thing. He's got horns, which is, I think, a first for them. They were a little bit in Yellow Submarine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, yeah, there was like that. Uh, 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 that one second in Yellow Submarine. <laughs> I feel like this is a proper horn section, I yeah. should say. This is like. That would, that kind of counts as Foley in the other one. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of a special effect, yeah. That's a pretty good bragging right, like to be like, I inspired the Beatles or I inspired Paul McCartney oh, yeah. in a song. Yeah. Pretty cool. Little Stevie. Yeah, I absolutely. mean, Stevie's got a lot of feathers in his cap. He does. Even if he didn't have that, he'd. He'd still be the he'd still be the guy. I like that they were going back and forth. Like you do, you uh, you inspired this one. I'm going to cover that one. Yeah, yeah. There's like a bromance. This is like an original oh, yeah. bromance well, happening yeah. between they Paul would, McCartney and Stevie Wonder. They would go on and collaborate. They did. I forget what song it is. I'm going to forget which one it is. Ebony and Ivory. I thought that's, that was Frank Sinatra and no. No. That's oh, that Paul was this, oh, that was a Saturday Night Live skit. I'm sorry. <laughs> Whoops. Oh, Jeez. yeah. You're right. Yeah, you're yeah right. with, with right. Phil Hartman, right? Right. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> yes. No, that's... Uh, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. No, Paul McCartney, Stevie Wonder. Yeah. They would have... I think they... St- I mean, they're still alive still. They yeah. have been like... It's a bromance for all, all time. It is. Two of the most talented dudes out there. Seeing each other's game. Yeah. Uh, this song is written, it's a song written to marijuana. <laughs> is got, that right? Got to get you into my life, yeah. It's like a, it's like a Motown love song. About the... Because they were smoking more about pot. About the sticky icky. About the <laughs> sticky icky that they got from Bob Dylan. Is Bob Dylan Dr. Robert? I want to Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. Robert Zimmerman. Mind blown. Um, there it is. Whew. Side note about the drugs. At this point, Paul was the only one who wasn't using LSD. The other guys were trying to get him to do it. But he was kind of committed to self-improvement through kind of like intellectual pursuits or being like he was really involved in kind of the London art scene Hmm. through his girlfriend and through a lot of these friends that he had. And so he's actually the only one who wasn't like using acid at this point. That's interesting because that's a good segue into the next song. Oh, yeah. Actually. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Why don't you take us there, Ian? All right. So the last song on the album is a song called Tomorrow Never Knows. And I had in big r- letters written here, LSD song, yeah. basically. <laughs> but actually to that point, though, I, I, I did have a side note. I felt like I'm seeing like the state of the members seeming 
to transcend the song because Paul, he holds down this like steady foundation throughout the entire song while everything else is going ape ape stuff. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> like I was like, wow, Paul is like holding it together and that seems to be like very indicative of probably where they're all yeah. at. Like, like, like John and mm. John and, and, and George are trying to achieve higher levels of consciousness through the use yeah. of, of hallucinogenic drugs. Yeah. Paul seems like, I didn't know if he was dabbling in them or not, but it seemed like at least he was the most grounded because the song seemed yeah. to reflect that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think that this song is the most reflective of LSD, in my opinion, of any of their songs. I think a lot of people will talk about Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds or Strawberry Fields Forever, or Glass Onion or whatever, but which we haven't gotten to yet. We'll get to later. Um, but <laughs> just, just dipping the toes. In, in the my in my mind, this is the one, and I'm here for it because I because you love taking acid. I love acid. <laughs> Sky drops daily. <laughs> I lo- I love this song so much. Uh, this is John, John singing. Okay. This is like a classic. Like in these '60s montages, it'll be either "Give Me Shelter" by the Stones. It'll be Fortunate Son by Credence. Yeah. Or it'll be Hey Joe by Jimi Hendrix, or it'll be this song. Yeah, sure. The montage of, like, helicopters in Vietnam. <laughs> right. And and I'm also here for that. <laughs> uh, I, I think this is... Well, let's listen, let's to, listen to what's going on. Okay, uh, Q. Yeah. I think this is kind of a revelation, this song. Mm-hmm. I think what you were talking about earlier where they were trying to take what things sounded like in their head yes. and make the instrument sound like that. I'm like, this song is that. This is probably yeah. what they experience. That, that's Paul laughing. Like is it? Up. That drum groove is just like, drum groove is awesome. Yeah. I admit it. You can kind of imagine it. Just an explosion of like colors and new perspectives and like transcendence. Right. John adopted the lyrics or adapted the lyrics, sorry, from Timothy Leary's The Psychedelic Experience, a manual based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Mm. And he told George Martin that he wanted his vocal to sound like, quote, the Dalai Lama singing from the top of a high mountain. <laughs> I can I can see that I can hear that sort of through a megaphone. Yeah. Crazy thing stuff. about this is that like they're using all these textures and stuff. This is kind of like sampling. It's kind of like mm. before hip hop, right? Like used all these clips and samples and and vinyl. Like they're kind of doing that here. They're making this collage, and it's all one chord, and it's just this this drone, and it's. It's so different. It's so, but it's it's so fitting that it's the last song of this record, mm-hmm. and it's it's like a cliffhanger. It's it does like, feel that way, doesn't it? It's saying, but where are we going next? Yes, stick yeah. around and find out next album. Yeah, I think the uh, a thread throughout this album that really struck me was Ringo, like the turning of a page, almost. Almost like it was like a point at which one turned. No. <laughs> yes, I thought the same. <laughs> um, was Ringo's. Uh, Really good drummer. Like I'm always like he's just mm-hmm. like I don't know he he's a drummer. He doesn't always stand out for that reason. But as I was listening to this today, like with new ears, actually listening to it to try to hear it instead of just like it's there. Um, I was like, oh my gosh, Ringo has chops, 
And that last track is probably my favorite, like my favorite version of him just going for it. It was really fun. Yeah. It's got so much energy. Yeah. Which and may have something to do with the compression you were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. The sound of it for sure, yeah. I'm thinking just of the performance too of like, I don't picture the Beatles, this feels like a visual cue, but like just with their head down and just like staring at the floor and yeah, just like. Just for the listener, Joel's miming a (laughs) bass player. He's bopping his head and he's just kind of feeling whatever jam he's hearing in his head. I'm thinking maybe James Brown, maybe James Brown's band where they would have, they would play the same song for 12 minutes and it would just be this funk groove and it, it wouldn't change for like several minutes and they'd just be locked in. Like I never picture the Beatles doing that. I picture them looking at the crowd i picture them going bring and like and singing on the same mic like but this song i i'm like what do they look like what did ringo look like what did paul look like while they're playing this mm. it's really sweat yeah it's, exactly. it's kind of way I feel it's hard like, to yeah. picture them doing that but they had to have been like it, it's such a they're very clean <laughs> they're very clean. clean. Um, they're my clean. last note on this, I just wrote, this is not Love Me Do. <laughs> 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 like, it's crazy to think yeah. of. We're talking literally three years. That's crazy. Wow. Between. <laughs> love, love me do. Right. <laughs> you know I love you. We're going from, like, three years from that to... Turn off your mind and drift downstream. <laughs> right. It's the same guy. Same Man. guy. There is, it is not dying. <laughs> like, <laughs> three years. I mean, that's, that's between, like, now and 2019. You know, imagine changing <laughs> that Man, much. It's wild. I mean, there's so many ways you can unpack that to, you know, what he's searching for. What he's, yeah. You know, this yeah. desire for more. Interesting. Yeah. That's that's a probably whole separate. Well, they've seen so much and they've come so far and they've they've done so many things that yeah, they're looking for something. Hmm. Yeah, you were talking about how like they definitely have a grasp on world music more than a lot of people do at that point. Yeah. Because they're going to that music and bringing it back with them, and I'm like, they're they're out there like. They they only had to, like, go play a show, get back on the plane and come back. But instead they stayed and had this experience and took back took in the culture and took back the music with them. And I'm mm. like, yeah, they were definitely aware and present in what they were doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Revolver was recorded between April 6th and June 21st, 1966. So you'll notice that that date of when that guy invented... Uh, the Veris speed or the double tracking. Yeah, the automatic double tracking. That was the first day. I don't know how accurate the dates are, but it was the first day of recording hmm. over a, a two-and-a-half-month span. And then um, it was released August 5th, 1966. Still amazing that they would turn that stuff around that fast, Yeah, in my opinion. Why isn't turnaround faster now? Because I'm like, they had to, I mean, they had to literally clip paste like merge or or bounce things it it just it was a really manual and labor intensive process and they were able to do it in a flash and now i'm like i mean joel sits at his computer and he's got 125 tracks in you know a few hours why do it does it take so long now Hmm. versus why did it or why did it take so why was it so quick then 
it is and it isn't. You can make things quicker than ever now. If you want to, you can make something and then immediately post it on whatever you want. Like you can you can do that. You can get it out there, especially if you're using like SoundCloud or social media. You know, you can post it and then immediately get it out there. I think there's more of a there's more of a system in place. I think that's why now. So if you're on a label or if you're an independent artist and you're trying to make a living from it, there's so much more of a system. You want to post about it. You want to promotion and building yeah, hype and all that okay. stuff. The processing of of different things, making sure it's out on all the platforms before it goes live, that kind of thing. And so I think back then we didn't have all that. But they still had much more of a physical barrier of yeah having to reproduce the discs and physically get it to radio stations and all that stuff. So I would say yes and no. I'd say that it is faster. It is way faster now. But sometimes it's it's but a intentionally bit delayed. Yes. Now, yeah. whereas they were just going as fast as they could back mm-hmm. then. Okay, I get yeah, that. Yeah, because once it was done back then, it was done. Then it was like, yeah, I mean, there was the artwork. But as soon as the artwork was done, it's like cool. The, then just the print Grammy it. winning artwork. A Grammy winning yeah. artwork. Yeah. Yeah. So what's left now? Paperback? Paperback writer. We this came out before, so it was recorded between the thirteenth and fourteenth of April that year. So they were in the middle of recording Revolver. Uh it was released May thirtieth, nineteen sixty-six. That song Rain was the B side of this, which I don't think I'd ever actually listened to, which is crazy. Me mm. either. Um, Today was the first time I heard it. And, uh, yeah, not much to write home about there either. I think you're right that it felt like it was just kind of another tax man. Hmm. Paperback writer, on the other hand. I this love one. It. I would write a paperback about paperback this song. I think this is my favorite song this week, actually. Yeah. Paul on the guitar, I believe. Yeah. Oh, really? Paul was going through a thing. He just wanted to play all the instruments. I don't blame him when you hear this. No, I agree. Remember I said they in, this was the last song that they introduced live when they, were, they had written it? Yeah. They tried to incorporate these elements live, and there were so many, like, layered vocals that they felt embarrassed, I think, that they were, they were oh, like, wow. this doesn't sound good if we can't have all that extra stuff. So this is basically, like, before t- tracks. Like, now yeah. we have p- everybody, many people use tracks live where they're... They're playing back these other instruments to make themselves sound good through this through the sound system when they play live. Um, the Beatles, of course, this is way before that. I don't know if the Beatles ever would have used tracks. I, mm. I'd like to believe they wouldn't, but they like they were recording the song and then they were going out and playing, and they were like, "Yeah, this doesn't like we can't." Or maybe I don't exactly know the order, but like it could have been that they would, were just practicing it and being like, "We can't play this." Like we recorded it because it sounds so good, but hmm. you know we have to do something different, and so and it's just another. So they introed it live, and then they recorded it and put that out. I don't know. And then I don't. They know. didn't play it live again after they put it out. What I know is that single. it's one of it's the last. It has the the uh, distinction of being the last song, the last like new song gotcha. that they introduced live. I don't know what at what point in the process it was, but they were feeling it at this point. They're feeling the limitations of playing live, and they were like, and it wasn't just that; it was just that like their concerts were madhouses, and so yeah. they weren't having a good time. So they were like, "Let's just go and make music like this." Hmm. Yeah. I I love that song. Me I think too. that's a great story. Same. It's like a, it's just a really fun lyric too. This idea of like a guy becoming a 
novelist and who it's a song about a story and then the story is about a guy who writes a book about a guy who writes a book <laughs> right right it's yeah. good it's great it's not it's more than good it, it definitely was my favorite song this week yeah yeah for sure his bass his bass sounds huge on this and then so the um one last production note is that there's this guy named he was a 19 year old engineer named jeff emmerich and uh imagine that being 19 years old. Mm. Wow. And you're, you're the guy for this these sessions. But he used a reverse loudspeaker to record some of Paul's bass amp tones, uh, notably on this song. All speakers are basically microphones reversed. They're, it's the same exact technology. A microphone turns vibrations into electrical impulses. A speaker turns electrical impulses into sound. So it's just the exact same thing happening in reverse. So you can take a loudspeaker... Or, a, or an amplifier, like a, a, a speaker cone like you see on an amplifier or on your in your um, headphones or whatever. And if you just reverse that process, you can turn it into a microphone. And so at the time, to get those bass frequencies, they didn't have a lot of microphones that could really handle that because bass sound waves, I think this is why, because they're so much bigger and louder and harder to manage. And so he took a loudspeaker, did this thing where he kind of reversed it, and then was able to put that in front of Paul's amp and get this much lower, kind of more full sound out of it. So he did it with a few songs on this album, this 19-year-old kid who would continue to be an engineer for them over the next couple albums. Wow. Good, good for him. Yeah, good yeah. for Jeff. Jeff yeah. Emmerich? Jeff Emmerich. I'm picturing like those like old school cheerleaders when they had those little like a, a cone that was like a microphone, you know? That's what I'm picturing oh. in front of a bass amplifier. No, it's, it's like this. It's like um, I'm pointing at my monitors. So it's, it's a very narrow, it's a okay, very gotcha. shallow cone. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, like a speaker. Like you, there's a round part of the speaker that has kind of a disc in okay. it. That, that's what we're talking about. It's almost like a small dome. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mm, man. So there we go. Revolver a... and yeah. Paperback Writer. Producer's encyclopedia, really. Yeah. Feels a, lot, like a lot happened. A lot happened. Somebody's, I, I didn't look into this at all, but there, it's been said that there were like nine new technologies introduced on this album. Between that thing with the bass, the Verispeed thing, the double tracking thing, the reverse guitar solos thing. Like there were nine new technologies basically introduced into recording that have been used ever since on this album. And again, I'm sure someone, this wasn't coming out of nowhere. These engineers were probably picking this stuff up from somewhere else, but this is where people really heard it for the first time. There was nothing else that was had this reach that was using these. It was probably kind of Brian Eno types who were making really niche stuff uh, that were, if, if at all, well, I think the moral to the Revolver story is if you want to develop new music, sonic ingenuities, drop a lot of acid. <laughs> yeah. That's the moral. That's why I I'm think here. That, I think that is the moral of the story. So there you go, kids. Thanks for having me here, boys. <laughs> yes, yeah. thanks, Jess. Thanks, everybody. See you all next time. See ya. Thank you so much for listening. That is it for this episode. Check back in with us next week when we will be discussing Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band with another very special guest. Hope to see you then. <laughs>